This morning, we look at three court cases. The first, that of Jesus, who ultimately the charge comes from the lips of Pilate. Jason will be speaking on that passage in the next chapter next week, but it sums up the charge. Are you a king? Is he a king? Is he your king? Is he your king? The second charge comes to Peter, as we'll see today. Are you one of his disciples? Are you one of his disciples? The third charge comes in a different court, a much higher court, the highest court. And the question that rises is, are you in Christ? Or as I heard once in a Pentecostal, a black Pentecostal church, are you under the blood? Are you under the blood? And so we have three courts, three charges, three questions. Before we read God's word, let's pray together. Father, our prayer is that you would open our hearts to your word, to what you have to say to each one of us this morning. And that you would open our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name and for his kingdom in our lives. Amen. And so we continue in our series in John. We're at John 18, 12 to 27. Then one of the detached, sorry, then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I'm not. It was cold, just like this here. (laughs) And the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus had said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is that the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? 
Then Ananias sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. So Jesus was taken, bound through not one, but three trials. Ananias, then Caiaphas, and then Pilate. Where the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us about Caiaphas, for reasons that we'll see later, only John tells us about Annas. Who was Annas? Annas was the Don. He was the Mafia Don. He was the Godfather. He was the head of an extended family of ecclesiastical bureaucrats. Historically, the role of high priest was appointed for life. We know this, all of this from the Jewish historian Josephus. But Annas had been deposed as high priest by Pilate's predecessor 15 years previously. But he'd engineered things, he'd contrived things so that five of his sons, his own sons, followed him as high priest. And now, at this point in time, his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was the named appointed high priest. But Annas was the real boss. Annas was the power behind the throne, the Don. The family of Annas was immensely rich. How come rich? Well, as you know, the temple worshippers brought their animal sacrifices to the outer court for inspection. And the animal had to be without spot or blemish. And if they brought something from outside the temple that had the slightest flaw, that would cause the animal to be rejected and they would be directed to buy something to sacrifice at the temple booths where the doves and the goats and the lambs were pre-approved. But the price was 15 times the price outside. And these booths were known as the bazaars of Annas. Who was it that dared to overturn the tables in the bazaars of Annas? Who was it that attacked Annas where it hurt? In his pocket. No wonder Annas wanted to be the first to gloat over the capture and the destruction of this Galilean upstart. But surely, surely, these guys, they're the spiritual leaders of the nation. They're the leaders spiritually that they lead the worship in the synagogue and the temple. I mean, they're like the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Pope rolled into one. I mean, the high, the high priest is, is the only one who goes only once a year into the very holy of holies. These are the leaders of the faith. 
Surely they're worthy of honor, respect, deference. What did Jesus call them? Hypocrites, whitewashed tombs. He's saying you're crawling with maggots. Why? What was wrong with them? There was a lot wrong with them. But the worst thing about them was the way they saw themselves as better than others, spiritually better than others above. They were very religious and they were proud of their religiousity. And sadly, spiritual pride didn't end with the Pharisees. I know better. I won't say it out loud, but I'm more spiritual. I have a better understanding. And I'm, I'm more committed than others. And my thinking is right. Others just don't have the insights. They haven't seen what I've seen. Who did Jesus reserve his undiluted condemnation for? Not the sexually impure, although he did say to her, go and sin no more. He reserved his undiluted condemnation for the spiritually proud. The scriptures repeatedly warn us against pride, warning us God opposes the proud, but gives grace, undeserved kindness to the humble. That's there not once, but three times in the scriptures. And the worst kind of pride, the kind of pride that the high priest and the Pharisees had and were condemned for, religious pride. Of course, None of us think we are proud. No one ever comes for counselling to the pastor because I'm proud. No, pride is the sin that hides. It's the carbon monoxide of sin. Invisible but deadly. What was it that caused Lucifer, this beautiful, powerful angel, to be cast out of heaven? What was it that drove the high priest and the Sadducees to want to destroy and crucify Jesus? What is it that causes leaders today, be they political leaders, business leaders, even church leaders, to behave in ways that cause pain to others and often leads to their own downfall? What is it? It's pride. And the worst kind of pride? spiritual pride. One horrible effect of pride is disunity in the church. Why do we have so many denominations in the church of Christ? Because, well, I know better. So I'll go over there and do my own thing the way I know is right. What causes division in churches and causes churches to be ineffective? I know best. My way, my teaching, my practice is best. Division comes when me being right is more important than me showing love and demonstrating love and having love for you. Jesus gave us a new commandment, John 13, 34. A commandment, not a suggestion, not a hint, not a great idea. A commandment, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I've loved you. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
Loving one another in the body of Christ in the church is intrinsic to who we are. It's part of our identity as followers of Jesus. Unity and harmony within the church are of huge importance. We read in Psalm 133 how God delights in unity. Behold how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity and agreement. As we hold together in unity and love, our prayers are rendered powerfully within the courts of heaven. Agreement is powerful. Jesus said it. I tell you more. Whenever two of you on earth agree about anything you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Agreement is powerful. If pride causes division, what is it that protects love and unity in the body of Christ? I'll tell you. It's humility. Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfishness or or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but the the interests of others. In Colossians 3, we learn something about humility. We read, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and beloved, dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility. Why does it say clothe yourselves with humility? Why does it just say be humble? Because the writer knows how hard that is. He might just as well say, because, you know, pride is inbuilt. It's part of our fallen nature. He might just as well say, be six inches taller. You can't do it. So what do we do? We clothe ourselves in humility. If you like, we put it on. In fact, in my RS, old RSV, it says, put on humility. So in, being, in seeking to follow the command to be humble, we put it on. We try hard not to extol ourselves, not to make ourselves the subject. And delightfully, as, as Rick Warren's book, um, what's his book called? It's called um, Rick Warren's famous book. Thank you. Purpose Driven Life. Not everything's here, you see. Um, first four words of the book. It's not about you. It's very profound. So be careful, please be careful, not to think of yourself as higher, more spiritual, more enlightened, more devoted than others. Clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so, to the trial of Jesus, let's jump in at verse 21. Why question me? Jesus says, ask those who heard. Is Jesus being obstructive? Is he being lippy? Answering back, why ask me? Do you remember back in John 8 when we were looking at the the case of the woman caught in adultery, how we noted that the 
Jewish law, while it seems very harsh, the law says we should stone such. What do you say, Jesus? We noted that the Jewish law has many mitigating features. We noted that there had to be at least two actual witnesses, and they actually had to see it. Okay? And in the same way, Jewish law provides that an accused should not be condemned by their own testimony. One Jewish scholar explains it like this, our true law does not inflict the penalty of death upon a sinner by his own confession. In the way Annas is questioning Jesus, he violates a basic principle of Jewish justice. And Jesus' reply was simply pointing out to Annas how it should be done. Jesus was a better lawyer than Annas. In fact, sorry, this is an aside, but he's the greatest lawyer who ever lived. Do you know he's still advocating for you in heaven? He ever advocates for you. He's the greatest lawyer ever. He says, ask those who heard me. What he's saying is, take your evidence about me in the proper and legal way. Examine your witnesses, which you have every right to do. In slapping him, the officer is saying, are you trying to tell the high priest how to conduct a trial? And Jesus' answer was, in effect, yes. Yes. You know, witnesses should be called. I've only stated the law. Why are you hitting me? Jesus didn't buckle. He didn't shout. He stands his ground with composure and holy dignity. And this passage might have been headed in our Bibles, the trial of Jesus. But John presents not one, but two trials. He juxtapositions, he weaves in the trial Jesus is going through with the trial Peter is going through. And it begins back in John 13. All others may leave you. I won't. I'll lay down my life for you. Me? I'll never let you. I'll never let you down. It begins with pride, self-assurance, presumptuous confidence. And it ends with a simple question. Are you one of his disciples? And with Peter flat on his face, weeping bitterly. Total failure. Have you ever felt like that? I have. In Peter, we see ourselves. Our own need of the love, grace and forgiveness which Jesus secured for us on the cross. In Peter, we see our predicament. In Jesus, we see our provision. Peter, you see, had been to the mountain, the spiritual mountaintop. And as so often happens after mountaintop experiences, be that the Mount of Transfiguration or a week at Spring Harvest or Soul Survivor or NLC, so often after the mountaintop experience comes the test. And God's word counsels us. So, if you think you are standing firm, 
be careful that you don't fall. Peter had a good heart. He made firm promises, but he wasn't careful. He wasn't careful. He neglected to watch and pray, and he fell. We too have mountaintop experiences. We too celebrate mountaintop experiences, but if we fail to be careful, to be watchful, to walk close. You can have a wonderful time of worship on a Sunday, but what are you doing on Monday to stay close to Jesus and follow him as Lord? You see, the enemy of our souls is out to get us, and he'll bring us down. He'll employ his most subtle techniques to seduce us away from loyal obedience to Jesus. We counseled at 1 Peter 5.8, be alert, or literally keep on watch, and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Peter fell, and the cock crowed. But as we know, the cock crow wasn't the end of the story for Peter. Later, John tells us of Peter's restoration and commissioning. And then in Acts, Luke tells us of Peter's powerful ministry. Remember, just straight away in Acts 3, Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. He asked them for alms and held out his palms. And what did Peter say? He said, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. But what I have got, I'll give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. We see Peter's powerful ministry after his restoration by Jesus, now emptied of self-importance and full of the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you identify with Peter this morning? Have you fallen short of the standard of life and witness that Jesus calls you to? Failure didn't disqualify Peter. And it doesn't disqualify you. Just as then with Peter, Jesus is here now to restore, to restore you, to commission, to recommission you, to set you back on the path of obedience and service and companionship with him. So there are not one, but two trials here. And in his trial, Peter failed abysmally, frightened of a little maid. First he lies, then he denies. And finally, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he curses. But Peter, once setting aside his pride and self-confidence and putting on a garment of humility, is restored, redirected, re-energized. He becomes a great apostle, a great evangelist, a great church leader, and a great theologian. Jesus said, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever wants to keep in control and keep their stuff and just keep their life, they'll lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Peter was willing to lose his life 
Peter was willing to give his life and he gained real life, abundant life, miracle working life, eternal life. And you can do the same. The promises of Jesus still stand. You can depend on them. Jesus said it to his disciples and he says it to you. Follow me. Follow me. Will you follow me? Because if you'll follow me, I will make you. Don't worry that you're just an old Galilean fisherman. Don't worry that you feel utterly inadequate. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you. And I'll make you fishers of men. Sorry, when I was a child, I used to sing this song and I thought it was, I will make you vicious old men. Sorry. Shouldn't. Fishers of men. Shouldn't have gone there. Jesus faced a kangaroo court with false witnesses and a corrupt judge. But the true greater reality was not what was going on in the courtyard of the high priests, but what is happening in the court of heaven. In the court of heaven, the one in the dock is me, it's you, it's mankind. In the court of heaven, the righteous ultimate judge is not overturning the law, he's not sidestepping the law, he's practicing perfect justice. The ultimate judge is not overturning the law. In his word, in his law, he sets out for us, mankind, if you do this, then that. But if you do this, then that. Your actions, your decisions have consequences. The wages of sin is death. But the law sets out for the people of Israel that sin can be atoned. And sin can force him to be atoned. There must be a sacrifice. It was required to bring an animal without blemish. The priest would lay his hands on the lamb, symbolizing the transfer of sin from the people through him vicariously to the lamb. But this had to be repeated. This sacrifice of the lamb to atone for sin had to be repeated over and over again because it was imperfect, it was inadequate, and it was temporary. But the once and for all sacrifice for all my sin and all your sin was for the perfect, sinless, unblemished Son of God to be the Lamb. By his stripes I am healed. and By his blood I am redeemed. And we read in Colossians 3, 13, we were looking at this verse in our small group this week. He forgave us, he forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Colossians 3, 13, he forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness. You see, by his suffering and death for us, Jesus cancelled the legal charge against us. The cross was the greatest legal transaction in history. 
It destroyed Satan's dominion in the earth and his legal right to claim us. It destroyed death's sting and grave's victory. We've seen there was Peter's trial. There was Jesus before Annas, Caiaphas and Pilate. But the real trial, the one that really counts now, was in the court of heaven, where the righteous judge, God the Father, was practicing perfect justice. He handed down the full correct tariff for the sins of mankind. He passed sentence, and then in his love for you, he allows the one and only beloved son to bear the entire weight, to pass to pay the entire penalty, to render the full ransom. And with his dying breath, Jesus cries out in Aramaic, tetelestai, and it means, and it's translated to us as, it is finished. But actually, the word was very common. When a person paid off a debt, when they settled a bill, they were issued with a receipt, or it was written on the bottom of the bill and stamped with the word, Tetelestai, paid in full. Just in finishing, a little loose end. In verse 15, we read, Simon Peter and another disciple were following. Who was this other disciple? Well, we won't take the time on the unlike, to look at the unlikely possibilities that it was Judas Iscariot or it was Nicodemus. It's generally accepted. It's universally pretty much accepted by scholars that this is the style that John uses to refer to himself. And in other places he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Out of humility, he doesn't draw attention to himself. Not like, you know, I was there. But it raises another puzzling question. How was it that John, a Galilean fisherman, was well known to the high priest and his household, and he could just come and go in the high priest's courtyard? I mean, how on earth was he able to do that? And, and he was the one who said, oh, Pete, this bloke's all right. You can let this one in. He's with me. He gives the nod for Peter to be let in. What? Well, let's look back a moment at John's call. Back at Mark 1, 19 and 20, we read, when he had gone a little further, when Jesus had gone a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them and they left their brother, their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So in addition to family members, Zebedee had hired men. What does that tell us? It tells us that Zebedee had a flourishing fishing business. He caught a lot of fish. Where was the market for all this fish? It was in the city, Jerusalem. Salted fish brought down from Galilee was a premium food for Jerusalem's elite. Now, 
Who would Zebedee entrust with the task of keeping in with his top customers, delivering fish and safely bringing home their cash? The hired men? No, his sons. The high priest, the Pharisees, would have been premium customers. John, of course, in writing, could have taken a line or two to say, I was there. Peter and I, you know, I was there in person. And I could just walk in because, you see, I was well known to the high priest in his household. I used to go in there frequently, as, as I did to all the top houses and wealthy estates in the city. But in his greatness, he doesn't find it necessary to explain his special acquaintances. Why did only John write about Jesus before Annas? Because he was there. He saw it. The others didn't. Why doesn't he tell us much about Jesus' time in front of Caiaphas? Well, he's already seen what the others have written. So he didn't need to repeat it. John was connected. He was a businessman, a networker. You know what a network is? What's the difference between a piece of cloth and a pile of threads on the floor? In the piece of cloth, the threads weave over, under. They press against one another. They hold in contact with one another. A networker is a person who rests... You know, when they contact other people, they have a conversation. Networkers tend to have lots of conversations with lots of people. If they go and walk the dog in the morning, they don't ignore the other people going around the park. You find they chat to them, and over time, they get to know them. That's what a networker is. John moved freely through the world's courts, and the Lord wants Christians who are like John. In the world, in places of influence, in offices, factories, schools, in government, networkers. Being salt and light, being distinctive, being different. What does that mean? It means being ready, ready to go the other mile. Ready to do more than is expected or required. Ready to serve. Ready for love does. Ready, in the words of 1 Peter 3, to give an account, an explanation for the hope that is within us, for why we are as we are, why we're different. I'm going to invite Anna and the worship team to start coming forward. In the place that you work, or where you go in the, during the day, do they know you're a Jesus follower? Is there any hint, is there any clarity in your behavior, in your words, that Jesus is Lord in your life? Do they know you're a Jesus follower? You are the light of the world, a city on a hill. A city on a hill, you know why? Because it can be seen. Who's he talking to? He's talking to you. And he's talking to me. And what's he saying? That we're not to be hidden, but releasing influence all around us. And just a little thing. You know, if you're active on social media, if you're 
Facebook and Instagram occasionally you put up that you're having a good time. You're at the theatre or you're on holiday in the who knows where or something good has just happened. Why don't you just leave a few hints? You know, hashtag God is good. Hashtag all by God's grace. Or, you know, if you hear a really good talk, if you find a really good sermon or a talk or something that it would be great for people who don't know Jesus to, re- to hear this, well, why don't you put a link to it on your Facebook page? I love Becky Dawson. I love Becky Dawson because this, do you remember the Sunday when I talked about my eviction from the allotment? Do you remember that? Well, I also talked about how offence is something that's taken. And that really spoke to Becky. So she posted it up on Facebook and it, it had over 100 views. So are you brave enough to do something like that? Are you brave enough to show people on your Facebook page, your social media, that you're a Jesus follower? And here's something that would be really great for you to watch. It really spoke to me. You know, and another thing, if you had, imagine you had a conversation at the office. You know, you've come in and somebody said, had a nice weekend. And you say, yeah, fantastic, great weekend. Church yesterday was amazing. The bloke who was talking, the talk was fantastic. It was so good. Yeah, and imagine the com- you have this conversation and the person you're talking to is actually a little bit interested. They might want to know more. How could you take it further? Well, wouldn't it be great if in your desk you just had handy a little booklet, Why Jesus? That we use a lot on, on the Alpha course. You know, wouldn't that be great? I mean, I used to, when I was traveling backwards and forwards to Guildford at one time in my life, I'd often look to pick up a hitchhiker so I could give them a little booklet called Journey Into Life. We'd have a little chat going down the A3 and they, they get a journey into life. Look, as they get out, you know, here you go. Or we might have even talked about why am I going to Guildford. Anyway, I've got a challenge for you this morning. Are you willing? Yes, you feel inadequate. Yes, you feel frightened. Yes, you're a bit scared because the zeitgeist, the culture that we're living in the 21st century is not very pro-Christian faith. Do you know that? No, much less so than it was 50 years ago. But are you, are you willing? Are you willing to give an account for the hope that is within you? Do you know, there's nothing more exciting and there's no greater gift that you can give than to invite someone, to introduce someone to the God who loves them. And a little tool like this could be an important step in that process. So I'm going to give you a challenge this morning. Are you willing? Are you available? If the opportunity presented itself, would you take it? And if the answer to that question is yes, yes, in all my inadequacy, and I wouldn't know what to say, Lord, I'd have to trust you for every word, but I'd have a go. If the answer is yes, I want you to show that to Jesus in a very, very practical way. I want you to walk to the front while we start singing the first worship song, but you can worship as you walk, you can multitask, and I want you to pick up one of these and take it home. And whether it's the office desk or it's the compartment in the car, or you just keep it in your handbag or your briefcase, whatever it is, come and get one as your statement, yes, I'm willing. Got that? Okay, so I'm done. We now have the privilege of being led in worship by the wonderful Anna and the team, and I'm sorry we're six minutes over. I'm going to put those there, and I won't be offended because I'm not watching. It's between you and Jesus. Are you willing?
Thank you.